On this week's show, devils with cancer? Can you blame being heavy on your dad? And how fat can help you burn fat? Let's do it! Three, two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source of news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 116, recorded on Wednesday, December 30th, 2015. Happy soon-to-be New Year, everyone. We have the full crew with us today. I'm so happy. Let's start, oh, I don't know, with maybe Christian Copley, saying PhD candidate in some molecular pharmacology and physiology. Yay, why'd you start with me? Oh. <laughs> oh, I don't want to be first. We have Carolina Balkenbush, our registered dietitian in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Hello, and of course, Dr. Delbert Jackson, PhD, biomedical engineering. Heidi ho. Heidi ho. I'm Scott Barnett. I'm also a PhD candidate in all things sciency, or one thing sciency, not all. Well, last day of the year, or second to last day. It'll be the last day of the year when people listen to this. Is there um, is there anything fun that well, we didn't record last week? We actually intended to, but uh, it was a mea culpa. I uh, had something I had to do, didn't work out, yada, yada, yada. Nobody cares, but we're back. Uh, two weeks, man. Uh, how'd everyone do? Do we have a fun week? Do we do anything interesting? I mean, it was Christmas after all. I was gonna say I had Christmas. <laughs> that was, you know, what any noteworthy uh, toys or gifts. I got a T-shirt that is Star Wars, and then I got another T-shirt that is Star Wars, <laughs> and then I got um a Monopoly game that is Star Wars, and. Um, I think that's about it. I got a few gifts early because um, my husband and I are terrible at keeping secrets and hiding things. So um, I got a tape recorder that converts it to MP3, which is really useful. And then, um, yeah, I think that's I got hooks to hang my guitars. I got a bunch of stuff. Now, I have no intention to dig into this can of worms. Oh, but please do. But please do. Uh, you uh, have been fairly vocal about your, uh, I don't want to say loathing of, although it did start out close to that uh, when I spoke to you, but your your less than complete enthusiasm for the new Star Wars, yet you happen to acquire all of these gifts. Were these gifts purchased and decided before the new movie came out? Um, see, and I think that, I think it should be known that it's not that I hate the new Star Wars movie. I just didn't like the the old people in it, which makes me sort of a heretic or whatever. But, just kind of um, let lying dogs lie, sort of. Let's move on. Yeah, and I've said it. I said it to you when I first talked to you about this and repeatedly afterwards. I love the new characters. Right. And I'm not going to give out any spoilers, but let suffice to say that every scene that they star in together with nobody else is gold. Everything else in the movie, meh. Okay, so I mean, that's go. a fair enough criticism. I think we can. And take as that. a franchise, I enjoy it. So, you know, I mean, I hate the first three, and I would still wear the shirt. So whatever. Yes. Yeah, I know. I'm worried that, like the as I've mentioned ad nauseum, the guy I went to high school with who directed Jurassic World is going to be directing. I think not the next one, but although I think this is supposed to be a trilogy, it'd be weird if he was directing the third one because you would think Abrams would want to hold the whole you know, next three sort of thing. But in, regardless, yeah. he's do, he has a signed contract to do 
one that's two or three down the road. And I was not a giant fan of Jurassic World. I thought it was a very by the numbers kind of boring movie. So yeah, I'm 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 hoping he he embraces this and does something special with it. So we'll see. Yeah. So I mean, he All was right. hired because it was like the largest. Like at that point, it was the biggest movie ever, or the second biggest movie ever, and now Star Wars is. So it's like it's a natural thing for Disney to hire him. They want someone who can put butts in the seats and to pay for the bill. So let's hopefully he right. brings some creative talent to it. But anyways, okay, cool. Yeah, good times. Indeed. Uh, Carolina, any any fun fun gifts or activities? Well, I did go snowshoeing while I was up in Reno. And the rest of the time, I spent watching the old Rocky movies and the old Star Wars movies. Did you go through so, all the Rockies? Um, only through the first two. <laughs> so, I don't know if I would <laughs> I say a little bit, all the Rocky movies. Like, what are they, like seven? <laughs> so you miss Mr. <laughs> T. You miss what is arguably... I, I did watch the opening of Rocky Three because okay. I, so I did get to see Mr. T. And the original Rocky, of course, is a classic and it's a wonderful film. But to me, the greatest Rocky of all time is always going to be Rocky IV because I was like 13 oh. and it was Ivan Drago. It was R- Russia versus the United States. To me, that's like one of the – it is the greatest boxing movie of all I time in my limited brain. I must break you. <laughs> I must break you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. Um, that's nice fun. leisurely weekend. How about you? Uh What's most interesting is not what I did for Christmas, but what's happening to me in two weeks, which I just found out a couple days ago. I have been invited by a very gracious individual to go to a SpaceX rocket launch in California. What? Not like, Thanks. not like a mile back, like like watching it, like all the 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 people from outside the gates, like inside the control room type thing. Oh, um, how cool! Yeah, so I'm like. I'm as giddy as a schoolgirl, as they say. I, I could not be more happy with this coming up. So so I will be going down for that. Dharma's coming too, and we will have a hopefully a wonderful time, and we'll see a rocket launch. Rocket launches are notoriously finicky, and it's a seven-hour car drive. I think we if it gets pushed to the next day, we can see the launch, but if it's pushed more than like a day, we might just have to come home with our tail between our legs and be like, well, we didn't get to see it. You know, I mean, these – Depending on weather, these rocket launches can be pushed back days or even weeks, you know. So let's cross our fingers and, and hope it works out pretty good. So, mm-hmm. Another Christmas gift I got, I'm about to enjoy on air right now. I got a Hefeweizen Merry Christmas special ale. Me too, me too. By, oh. by one Carolina Balkenbush, made in her very own bathtub. <laughs> Are you drinking that right now? <laughs> Are you drinking it through a straw? Yep. <laughs> no, but I'm uh, accentuating the uh, Was that a fart? The drink. No. <laughs> so, it's, not uh, it's not a straw. It's not a bong. I'm going to do a live air testing of Carolina's bathtub Hefeweizen. And here's I'm we'll ahead of you. It's we'll great. It. It's delicious. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right. Here's my first sip. Mm. Holy happy hecky. That's awesome. You oh, made a I'm real so beer. I like it. It's a real beer. It's got alcohol in it and everything. It's it's extremely smooth, like especially for a Hefeweizen. This is really nice. Oh, fantastic. There Do you get go. some banana and cloves in there? I abso- I got the bananas. I don't know if I have a distinguished enough palate to determine the cloves, um, although they're a little bit on the back of the tongue, as they say. I'm getting it on mm-hmm. the uh, a little bit now. Yum, yum, yum. I will be enjoying this throughout the show. Thank you, Carolina. Awesome. Glad you like it. Cool. Uh, Delbert, fun Christmas? Anything fun? Uh, I'm 
you ready? You're not really <laughs> selling this one. <laughs> Christmas was great. It was a good time to be home with the family. And I just had the last three days off to be home with the daughter. Have you done and something today, to your mic, friend? It's super gravelly. Like you put like like you're talking through a bedspread now. It's the Hefeweizen that I see. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is drunk. Makes you quite rusty. You sound like uh, mellow. Who, you no, have to stick your mellow. microphone in it. Yeah, it's like you're you put the microphone in your mouth. You sound like the the new villain from Star Wars, the guy from. Girls. Stop! I've not seen it. Oh. I've only seen the old ones. Sorry. <laughs> it's a new villain. Great. It's I know. It's it's so sad when when Darth Vader dies. Dude. Harsh. Uh, That's basically what happened when I started watching episode six. Someone's like, "Oh yeah, so is this the one where Darth Vader dies?" You're like, "Thanks, bud." And then they they retorted with, uh, "Yeah, this is a spoiler from 1983. I'm not feeling so bad." <laughs> Indeed. Well, all right. Well, so um, moving on, uh, Odd Lang Sang tomorrow. Uh, you don't have to chime in. Does anyone have anything crazy going on tomorrow we should know about? Oh, nothing crazy. Hanging out at home, having some friends over, drinking yeah. beer. Pretty low key, too. Yeah. Chris, nothing I'll remember. Yeah. <laughs> Christian is not having a low key uh, New Year's Eve, I imagine. Nope. Indubitably. Okay. All right. Yeah. We it's it. my usual. Your use use. With that being said, with that being said, Carolina, Christian, Dell, what do we do now? Scott. We what don't do we do talk now? over the sound effects. Yes, we get to listen, we get to hear what's happening. Oh, our listeners, the pew. our listeners don't know why we're, you guys are saying all that. Um, it's all behind the scenes stuff that nobody but me cares about. But I have managed to make it so that my, as I'm recording the show right now, all the sound effects are put in natively. The other co-hosts get to hear the sound effects. It's all exported as a nice file at the end. It uh, it is boring beyond words for 99% of people but for me it has absolutely made my year and uh and so so that's they if you didn't know it they could never hear the sounds before of anything i all had to put that in a post but now now we're all modern science blast science blast so exciting love it it is i have um two stories so i'll go ahead and throw in a quick one here and then and then we will move forward from there this was not mentioned in the lead in here but I'm going to play a sound for you guys and tell me how would you describe this sound? That is a shriek. A shriek. That's good. Anyone else have a descriptor? A scream? Scream. I'm going to go with scream. What kind of scream? Very high pitched one. It could be described as blood curdling scream? Yes. That's okay. A reach, but sure. <laughs> yeah. That was like the most desperate scream on the planet. If that, okay, whatever. So, blood curdling, that's what this is. A team of researchers from Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands just released a paper called Blood Curdling Movies and Measures of Coagulation Fear Factor Crossover. <laughs> wow. Yeah. This was in the British um, Medical Journal, and they. Every December, do some lighthearted stories. They're real science. I, I in the vein of kind of Ig Nobel. They're 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 
controlled and they do everything they're supposed to, uh, but they're more lighthearted, more what the general public would be interested in here. And so this was, the story was about this team in the Netherlands took a, uh, 24 healthy volunteers. All of them were under 30. I don't know why that was their selection criteria. Maybe it's, I'm guessing, honestly, having been at universities, this is probably a university-based study, and it's very easy to get people under 30 for these trials. As a matter of fact, my first degree, I was a psychology major, and you were required to participate in like three or four graduate study <laughs> like things per term so that they could get their PhDs and all sort of stuff. So I imagine, if I had to guess, that's why they did this here. But in any case, 14 of these people watched a horror movie the first week, then an educational movie the second week. The other 10 did the opposite pattern here. And what the results showed was that there um, uh, there was a, a change in these coagulation factors here. And they where they tested this with, and this is where I think the probably the biggest shortcoming of the study is, they used something called a fear scale and question here. After each movie, participants completed a visual analog fear scale uh, designed specifically for the study, as they say. And anytime you just kind of create something for fun out of whole cloth that hasn't been tested by other people, there is just tons of error that can be introduced into it. But in any case, they have their own little thing here, and the scale estimates the degree of fear experience while watching the movie, ranging from zero, which was no fear at all, to 10, which was the worst possible fear that someone could imagine. Uh, additionally, participants reported uh, whether they had already seen the movie, and they kind of like just did all these things where they could normalize the data and whatnot. And what they found was that there was a difference in uh, in uh, factor eight, coagulation factor eight. Uh, the, the, well, I'm sorry, they compared the levels of coagulation factor eight before and after the movie. And what they found is people who had watched the horror movie and who were genuinely considered scared by the horror movie had a statistically significant increase in coagulation factors. And... It wasn't just that one factor here. They also looked at like thrombin and um, um, I'm sorry, thrombin, antithrombin, D-dimers, uh, prothrombin, all these different things. Um, and and primarily, they just found that this factor eight was elevated here. But it is a primary component in in blood coagulation here. So they concluded, you know, in this case, that you know, horror movies can be associated with an increase of this coagulation factor, and the term blood curdling scream may actually be moderately valid you know it's terms of what this actually means you know they pointed out that there might be an evolution evolutionary benefit for if you are terrified if you're being chased by a bear or being stabbed by someone or or whatever the case if your body's already prepping for the impending damage the impending bleeding then when you actually get cut or damaged you'll already be kind of prepped it's like a vaccine. You know, the scream is a vaccine of sorts, you know, because it's got your, it's got all that 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 coagulation factor prepared for for your injuries. So, you know, there you go. That's all I got. That's pretty crazy. It is I, kind so, of a funny so, story. So, where did that term actually come from? I don't have all the answers. Well, you seem pretty prepared this week, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I have no idea where it came from. So um, that's some good podcasting for you there. Yes, listeners, please help. <laughs> Indeed. Um, since you're so talky and interested in making me look silly, why don't you go next, Carolina? Oh. With well, a segue? With a segue? Yes. Well, you know that uh, that scary movies might um, make your blood more chunky, but <laughs> could we do? Make your blood more fluid and reduce the number of triglycerides in it is uh, fish oil. 
Another thing that fish oil does pretty good. is it can actually help you burn fat, which is so weird to think that fat, which is stored as fat, um, can make you burn fat. But um, a new article in Scientific Reports with research coming from Kyoto University um, actually uh, elucidates a little bit of the mechanism of how fish oil can help you increase your metabolism and store less weight as fat. So um, these researchers did um, some studies on rats. Um, what kind of rats? Hmm. Um, different kinds, different kinds of rats. Okay. Um, some of them were just normal, um, normal mice that were fed either a control diet or a diet that was high in uh, fish oil, either high in EPA or high in DHA or both. Um, and um, other rats were knockout rats that um, did not have um, the gene TRPV1. Um, so TRPV1 is a receptor. Yeah, it's that... TRIP V1. Yes, we talk a lot about V1. TRIP. Yep. All right. Well, you probably know more about TRIP. Can you tell us a little bit about TRIP? <laughs> Double down. Good one. <laughs> 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 they are ligand-gated receptors, and they are most famously associated with taste. A lot of your taste receptors are TRIP-sensitive here. But, yeah, they're all they're all over your body. Tons. There's like eight, nine, ten different types of them, but they're – a, re- a ligand comes in, it binds to the receptor, and something happens in the cell. That's what TRIP does. Excellent. So they, they're found in your digestive tract, right? As well. Yeah, they're found As everywhere, well. essentially, but it's just different Pretty periods. Much. Okay. So, um, thank you very much, Scott. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so oh, we'll in, come back. Uh, in, in regular mice um, that were fed fish oil, they gained uh, less weight. They gained 5 to 10% less weight and stored 15 to 25% less fat than those that did not consume fish oil. And we've talked before about white fat and brown fat. So white fat is basically storage fat. It's not very metabolically active. But brown fat has more mitochondria in it. And um, when the, uh, the uncoupling proteins um, are activated, it basically will... Uh, uncouple oxidative phosphorylation and raise the body temperature of the animal, either the mouse or um, baby, because babies have a lot of brown fat, human babies, um, and basically cause them to, to, to burn more energy off just as heat instead of being used um, in metabolic processes. So um, uh, basically fish oil um, is is able to turn white, white fat cells to, to cells that are more similar to beige cells. And what they were able to do in this study is they measured um, gene markers that are usually used to identify beige fat cells, which are more similar to the brown fat, um, in mice that were fed the fish oil-rich diet. So that was one thing they did. They, they actually did a bunch of stuff in this study. Another thing they did is, is when they fed um, the fish oil to these knockout mice that had that had an inactive, what did you call it, the T? Trip V1. Trip V1. The Trip V1 gene was inactivated. Um, they did not have these effects of basically having um, the the uncoupling protein activated. They did not have the same effect of um, burning more fat. And they also did not have the same activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which the sympathetic nervous system's role is to um, increase uncoupling protein expression in brown adipose tissue and basically activate the brown adipose to burn more fat. 
So oh, it's okay. it's kind of a complex process here, and they were able to to take a lot of steps to see exactly how this works. But overall, I mean, it's pretty interesting to see that the fish oil intake can um, make your body fat more metabolically active and help you to burn more fat overall. So um, for details on this, um, I definitely recommend checking out the article. It's, it's a pretty easy read, um, and you can see all the different studies that they did as part of it. Um, so like I said, it was published in Scientific Reports. The study is called Fish Oil Intake Induces uh, UCP1 Upregulation in Brown and White Adipose Tissue Via the Sympathetic Nervous System. Did it? Uh, so as did a it- registered dietitian, Carolina, like not to put you on the spot and open you up to any potential litigation, but you you read an article like this. What does it take for you to turn around and for your patients to start recommending them to take fish oil in this for this case? Like, what what would it take for you to recommend it? Because this is just one article, sure. and especially thinking about fish oil and the whole you know DHA controversy. Yeah, how we thought it was supposed to help with with cancer, and now a few years later, they're saying that it probably has very little uh, cancer fighting effects. Like. What do you? Because you you're a actual dietitian. You're not someone like me who would read this and then start you know just downing fish oil like crazy. So yeah. what do you use to determine how to how to judge kind of these types of stories? Now that's a really good question, and you know this this is a very interesting study because it actually looks into the mechanism of how fish oil is working to um, increase metabolism. Right. But it's done in mice. It's one study. Um, I would not make a recommendation to take fish oil based on this for weight loss. Um, at the at the moment, the only thing that I recommend fish oil for is basically if you have elevated triglycerides because that type of research is really well documented in humans and it's been repeated many times. So it would definitely take more more research um, and, and particularly in a human model for me to recommend it. The key when, being the, replication. Yes. Yeah. And, and not just replication, but we fear longitudinal. We No single study, especially when it deals with long-term health consequences, is going to be definitive after one, two, three, or four studies done over three years. Like, that's why people get annoyed at scientists because they're like, wait a minute, you said that eggs were bad and then they're good and now the fish oil and this and that. It's like studies suggest certain things and they can be shown at the cellular level, but we don't know what it does to you if you take – if you take – 12,000 IUs of fish oil for 12 years, it may hurt you, you know, like we, unfortunately science doesn't move that fast. Now we have a lot of the benefits from things that have been tested in the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. And we see what's good and not good in that you're, you're, you're reaping the benefits of that, but don't look at cutting edge science and assume it's going to, it's going to fix you immediately. That's just not how basic science works. Right. So, so while yeah, while it is interesting to to learn things like this, um, overall it's not you know listening to this podcast don't don't feel like you should start taking fish oil for this reason alone. Um, you know, fish oil might be something you might want to take if your doctor recommends it to you, or if you have high triglycerides. But, or if you, you know, just and- really hate fish. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I I would find I. I have yet to meet the person who doesn't like salmon. Are there people who don't like salmon out there? Oh, absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people. Really? I love it. But... It's so special. Um, <laughs> I want to eat the Franken salmon that you talked about. Frankenfish. Yeah, the Frankenfish. Yeah, I think that would be good. Uh, I think where you can't go wrong, or that's too broad of a term, 
where you'll generally be okay. If, if you're thinking fish oils are the right thing and you're seeing more studies and you want to experiment, don't go out and take ton, vast quantities of pure fish oil. Increase your food content of foods, which is very eloquent, yes. <laughs> that have these these dietary requirements, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and it's so interesting. You know, usually supplements will have a much more concentrated amount of a certain... Um, but they don't necessarily guess, have the cofactors and other right. things that that will it, that will amplify whatever effects you're looking for. But salmon has has a ton of the EPA and DHA as compared to like a fish oil pill. So you know you're you're getting it in a more whole, complete form. Um, along with the mercury. Along with the mercury. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's a Great. mean one. Mr. Love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, Christian Capley Salem. That's so weird that you would pick me because I have a segue. Hmm. Oh. Speaking of fat people. All That's right. A there it is. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> we're basically talking about the same topic, sort of. Um, we're talking about obese men. Specifically in my story, we're talking about obese men because generally it is assumed by some people who are not so educated in the ways of science that women's health is the basically one of the limiting factors of baby health and their children later on they don't a lot of people don't look at men because they sort of figure that everything that happens is sort of happening inside the woman and blah 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 and this is totally ridiculous and one of the studies that I just recently came across from actually this month found that the sperm of obese men is markedly different than the sperm of not obese men, and the differences are in genes that affect appetite. So, are these that's epigenetic kind of or actual genetic? Well, we're going to go into that. It's a little of both. Um, obviously, you're not changing – your diet isn't going to change your base genome in a major way. It's not like it's going to rewrite a gene. I mean, that I could actually come up with a fantasy scenario how that would happen, but it doesn't really happen. But the actual sequence of your genes doesn't necessarily determine a lot of traits. It d is determined by when genes are turned on and off. And you can look at this by looking at any cell in your body, pick a cell, a skin cell, and then look at a liver cell. They're very different. They look almost like they're from different organisms. If you just put them under a microscope, you'd be like, wow, those look very different. Um, but in actuality, they have the exact same genetic code. The difference is one is expressing one suite of genes and another is expressing another suite of genes. So particularly, this is particularly important during development in that if you change the genes that are active during development, that can have lifelong fundamental effects on the developing fetus. Because if genes are turned off during um, development that are important, they die. You die. So there's the most dramatic, you know. Which actually happens all the time. The rate of spontaneous yeah. abortions are shocking. It's like 40% or 50%. It's ridiculously high. Right. 
Um, so what they found was that when they compared the sperm of lean to moderately obese men, they found 9,000 genes had epigenetic changes. Now, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, okay. Don't we only have like 10,000 genes? Well, we have like 20, I think it's like 23. Is it 23? Okay. It's not as high as people would think. Plants have, I mean, you want to talk about lots of genes? Plants have lots of genes because they're polyploid. But yeah, they're, yeah. We have, um, we have like 23,000, so 9,000 genes, that's half the genome. Um, and then, so then they're like, well, that includes one of the genes for obesity. Well, if you include half the genome, you've got a 50-50 shot. Not convinced by that. Um, so they identified 300 genes that were linked to eating behavior. Once again, if you find half the genome, you're going to find a lot of genes that do almost anything. So, um, so far I'm not convinced. And partly because, and I'm going to get to this as part of the story, but during your gestation period as, a, as an embryo, as a very, very small set of cells, your epigenome, this methylated DNA pattern, which I think we've talked about epigenetics, so I'm not going to go totally into it, but basically it's changes in the chemical structure of certain base pairs. That is wiped out during development and rewritten. But isn't it rewritten in the same way? Isn't that one of the... How like, would it know? But that's I, that's the big question. But I my understanding is that it's rewritten in the same way. It's only rewritten in the same way based on whether or not it's a methylation site. Which so, is a major factor in eukaryotic products. Right. But it, it if you have a, an alteration in methylation that changes one methylation site with another... Chromatin. And both of those sites are available for methylation after the rewrite. They're both going to get methylated. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have some sort of weird mechanism to remember every site. It's a, it's an enzyme that's running along the DNA, adding methyl groups. Yeah, but uh, just to briefly say, if it completely wiped it and rewrote it at random, then there would be no transfer of epigenetic characteristics from one generation to the next. We know that. So I'm going to read true. you the next line in the study, in this, in this story. All right. It was thought that epigenetic changes could not be passed across human generations because patterns of DNA methylation are wiped clean soon after fertilization. So but. yes, it does wipe it clean. However, which seems to take what they just said as being irrelevant and I don't see anywhere that they have saved that, <laughs> but um, another interesting part of the study is that they found that microRNAs, which this I've actually seen before, and this is kind of interesting, microRNAs um, can affect what genes are methylated through silencing, so they, they, they basically prevent them from being remethylated. So here's the mechanism that we have for um, changing the methylation pattern during this rewrite. However, this rewrite isn't necessarily based on what was there before, but it's based on the chemical environment that the DNA is in now. So if you have a set of microRNAs or small RNAs 
Um, there's like 15 different length RNAs, and they all have different names, and I'm not going to go into that. But if you have these short fragments of RNA that can alter methylation patterns, and they're produced in the sperm of some people and not in others, then there's your transfer. There's your, your heritable mechanism. Um, so what they found is in obese men's sperm that these methylation-altering RNAs were considerably higher levels than they were in thin, I'm going to say thin men's sperm. So there is, there is a plausible mechanism for this transfer, although it doesn't seem to me to be related at all to the 9,000 epigenetically changed genes that they've found in the beginning. Because they're talking about what happens after all of those are wiped out. However, if we want to draw this all together, and I'm going to do I'm going to do this in one big swoop. If these short fragments of RNA are coded into the genome in places where that altered epigenetic pattern would suppress or express them differently, then that could pass through the epigenetic rewrite because they're present in the sperm already and then they would change the rewrite pattern so it seems to me that the rewrite pattern of the embryo would be more important than the pattern of methylation on the sperm before fertilization does now, that make I, sense sort of am i following you right in that these microRNAs affect the methylation rewrite or they protect certain methylation sites? They are short. This, uh, I had or shRNAs. Uh -huh. Yeah, it says that they dictate which genes are methylated. Post wiping out. Post wipe. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. okay. Um, so now, there just, are genes and these RNAs are, are found to be in control of genes to control appetite. Amongst a lot of other sperm. things. Right. Because microRNAs um, always have dozens and dozens of targets. Oh, yeah. Even one microRNA can take out a lot of stuff. Anytime you try to do CRISPR, you will figure that out really quickly. Right. Like, how many off targets? It's like 8,000. What? Yes. So, um, so what they did was they did what I consider to be another seemingly unnecessary experiment. But they looked at men who were overweight. And I guess it's not unnecessary. They looked at men who were overweight and then did bariatric surgery and lost a lot of weight. And they found that their methylation pattern um, had changed after a year and that some 4,000 genes had been altered. Now, all that's really doing is making a case for the fact that weight loss can affect the epigenome, which we kind of knew that. That's not, that's not news. If you're um, heavy enough to require bariatric surgery, or at least undergo elective bariatric surgery, you're there's so much going on in your body as far as hypertension and blood volume, and just it goes on and on and on. That you, of course your methylation patterns are going to be grossly out of whack with a thin person. Right. So, These are of course in sperm. Again, same thing. So. Right. It, it is a little more interesting in sperm than it would be in your liver. Right, right. right. Um, so, but they found those 4,000 genes have been altered a year later. Once again, that's a quarter of the genome. Like, um, 
and only 2,700 of those genes had been identified in the earlier experiment with the 9,000 genes. So these are 4,000 genes that barely overlap the other 9,000 genes, and it sounds like a lot of sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge association, but what I don't see is strong hypothesis-driven statements. These are like these are like big data sets that haven't been followed up on. Yeah, right. So anytime you have um, this this um, change in something so big, like nine thousand genes, you're not telling anybody anything because we don't even know like what those 9,000 genes all are. And to say it includes a few genes that are linked to obesity, okay, that's, again, you're, you're talking about just slightly under half the genome. Of course that's going to be true. There's going to be genes in there for eye color. Like it's all about what you're looking for. Because I guarantee I could take that 9,000 gene data set and come up with an argument that genes in there are involved in making toes or the length of your fingernails at birth like i mean there's got to be stuff going on there that they're not talking about and i don't I, I don't like that i don't like it when they leave out huge swaths of information and cherry pick small amounts of data from a large data set um and i haven't seen their math i don't even know if they did mathematical correction for multiple tests um which is what they would have to do but it so I'm not overly convinced, and of course, the title of this article is Obese Men Found to Make Sperm with Thousands of Modified Genes. Which is, like, very wrong. <laughs> like, Yeah, I mean, but no, the genes yeah. are still there. And, and we don't even know, we're not even confident that those epigenetic changes really are affecting those genes' expression. I don't see any expression um, information. I don't, I don't see how they're connecting... And they may do this in the literature. I didn't spend, you know, a week becoming an expert on their research. But this article just leaves a lot to be desired in terms of how they're making all of these connections. And they only have one reference. To me, the most sal salvageable point of interest in their story is a mechanism to which we can remethylate in a predictable pattern certain genes during the embryo's development, because that's still kind of a mystery. And these microRNAs at least give a plausible pathway to how when you wipe that methylation, that, that epigenetic state in embryonic growth, how you can return to something largely matching what was there before. And to me, that's that's something I can put into my little basket of something to think about, you know? Right. And it doesn't have to be, like, I'm not even concerned about matching. I'm only concerned about predisposed to. So if like if you're a parent and you don't have a specific set of obesity genes, you just are in an environment where you're eating a lot um, because we have this sort of disease mentality. Anyone who's like 12 pounds overweight, oh, my God, they have a disease. But you, they, their parents may just be in an environment where they are constantly exposed to high fat foods. They're sedentary because of their jobs or whatever, and they gain more weight than than they would be, say, genetically predisposed to, their children could develop a certain set of epigenetic changes based on that that would be different from their parent but would 
perpetuate the obesity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect so, sense. So it doesn't have to be the same as the parent as much as it is it's the behavior or the the predispositions that they're passing on. So are you telling me Darwin was wrong and Lamarck was right? I'm saying that there is a lot of evidence that <laughs> Lamarck had potentially a, a small amount of information that might pan out to be right in the end. I think Lamarck stumbled across something that just happened to be right, and we're giving him way more credit than he deserves. Lots of people do that. I yeah. mean, some of those people are famous scientists, so, you know. It's very it's, true. There's a joke. I think it was Isaac Asimov that said that the the statement from a scientist that heralds the beginning of a new scientific era of, with a giant breakthrough is not, oh, my God, I found it. It's, what the hell? <laughs> Yeah. Because it's that's, like, huh, look what happened. Yeah, that's weird. Let's look at that. Yeah, that, that's how it happens. So, anyway. That's funny. Well, thanks, Christian. Fun, good little story there here. So uh, I've got one more story, and I believe, Dell, you've got a uh, kind of science summary of the year? Sure, yep. Yay. Okay. Um, so my story is... So, segway. Segway. Oh, shoot. Um, <laughs> uh, so... If you're dying of cancer, you're probably not fat. Oh, Jesus. Or you could be. <laughs> and at least you look good. At least you look good. So have you guys ever have you guys ever heard of contagious I'm cancers? So proud of I'm so proud of you guys right now. <laughs> I've definitely rubbed off on oh, you. <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna burp into the microphone again? <laughs> I never burp come on. <laughs> oh, uh, that might just show up as a recurring little thing on my pad here. Um, okay. Um, have you guys heard of contagious cancers? Yes. Uh, Tasmanian devils. That is right, sir. And they're not alone here. So uh, a contagious cancer, which almost sounds like a misnomer, is a transmittable cancer that are somatic in nature. They're not germline like we were just talking about with Christians. And they spread between individuals via the transfer of living cancer cells. So exactly what it sounds like. There are only three known naturally occurring transmittable cancers. One of these affects dogs. One affects, of all things, as we all know, soft-shell clams. Uh, nobody knows that. Oh, and, <laughs> and the third, as Dell alluded to, or directly said, Tasmanian devils. And the Tasmanian devil transmittable facial cancer, which is just Google Tasmanian devil cancer, and it's it's about it looks like oh man, did you guys ever see The Fly Two, the movie? Christian may have. No, no. Oh, I never saw The Fly One. They have oh my good. Well, there's actually two Fly Ones. There's one from the fifties, and then there's the reboot. Okay, I saw the fifties one. Okay. Uh, in any case, in Fly Two, there's a rat thing that has tumors all over it and it looks just like this uh apparently this is all lost on everyone but google tasmanian devil tumor and it's pretty gross so uh this was first seen in 1996 and it's threatening pretty much the entire species of tasmanian devils which are all located except in zoos on the island of tasmania which is a state in australia so back in 1996, this happened, and they're pretty much going extinct now because of this. Now, until now, the disease had been consistently associated with just a single, what they call an aneuploid, an aneuploid cancer lineage. Aneuploidy is, is basically a way to describe how many sets of chromosomes you have in the cell. And if you have aneuploidy, it means you typically have a, a, the wrong number of chromosomes in a cell. And this is kind of a hallmark of a lot of cancers. This Everything typically goes, goes wrong. And... 
in Tasmanian Devils is called DFT1, which stands for Tasmanian, take the T off that, and then Devil Facial Tumor Disease. Pretty fun sounding. So that's the end of the story, right? Uh, there's a cancer. It's killing all this. It's transmittable. That's weird. End of story. Except if having one transmittable cancer wasn't rare enough, the authors of this new paper that just came out found a second transmittable cancer, DFT2, which despite its similar name to DFT1, is completely and 100% independent of the first transmittable tumor cancer in Tasmanian devils. And this was just discovered between 2014 and 2015, and both strains are now attacking <coughs> excuse me, the Tasmanian devil, and things are looking pretty, pretty bleak for them at this point here. And... If you're wondering how the heck a cancer can be transmittable, uh, the idea is really pretty strange here. And we've talked about cancer in the past. I won't go over it a lot. But the idea is that when you get cancer, if you get any sort of pathogen in you, whether it be a virus or a bacteria, your body is extremely good at identifying things that don't belong there. When, you're, when your T cells, your B cells, all these immune cells are made, it goes through a very selective process in your lymph nodes to make sure, kind of through Goldilocks scenario here, that it recognizes your own cells without attacking it. And it doesn't, and so on the one side of the spectrum, you it doesn't recognize your own cells at all. It doesn't attack any type of cells. That's kind of a dud. Your body gets rid of it in the lymph node. The other side is that it sees your own cells and it attacks your own cells, where this is the basis for autoimmune diseases. Then your body tries to get rid of those cells. But the cells that do, the, the, the T cells in, that do make it out of your lymph node, they see and recognize your own immune, your own cells in your body, but they don't attack them. And they're also really good at identifying things that don't belong there at all, like like the viruses and whatnot. So the problem with cancer is that when you when you have a cell that starts going wonky and it starts producing, replicating, and doing all these things that a cancer cell does, your body just leaves it alone because it goes, oh, you're one of me. It doesn't recognize that it's 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 amplifying at a at a at a at a rate that's going to kill you. It just sees that it's one of you and it leaves it alone. That's why cancer is so difficult to treat here. So if I were to inject one of my cancer cells or a whole bunch of them into someone else, my bo their body would almost immediately see these cells and say, hey, those are not my cells. It doesn't care that they're cancerous or not. They just see that they don't belong there. And this is the reason we reject tissue grafts all the time. I can't easily take my skin, put it on someone else, or give someone else a liver. You have to be on these heavy anti-immunosuppressant or these immunosuppressant drugs because your body's trying to kill these cells that don't belong there. So how can this possibly happen in Tasmanian devils and a couple other species? How how does this cancer jump across them with uh and, and have that and have them be able to survive her? I found a paper uh, in the journal uh, Oncogene called Clonally Transmittable Cancers in Dogs and Tasmanian Devils, and it gave a pretty decent background here. And this is essentially what it said. Allogenic transfer of cells or tissues between unrelated individuals is normally prevented by histoincompatibility incompatibility, excuse me, barriers erected in all jawed vertebrates. These are called MHC. And, and if you don't know, if you've not taken uh, in, in a, an immunology class here, I won't try to bog you now too much here, but MHC is a major histopatibility complex here. And there's two types. There's type 1 and there's type 2. MHC type 1 cells, they are existing in all your nucleated cells so pretty much anything but red blood cells and a couple other random examples here and what they do is if you they have proteasomes in your cells and these are just little machines that chew up uh, um, either 
proteins that your body's done with, or if you have that cell takes in a virus, it will try to take that virus and chew it up. It takes little broken up pieces of these proteins and it shuttles them to the outside of the cell and it kind of holds them out like, hey, look at me. Your immune system comes along and touches this major histability complex with a little piece of broken up protein in there. And if it's from a virus or something, it says, hey, we need to kill the cell because it's infected with something it shouldn't be. If it's just holding up normal broken down protein that your body was done with that it made, it sees it, it touches it, and it says, hey, we're good to go here. So it moves on. Well, the problem with Tasmanian devils, and this is partially because they're such an isolated pop population, is that the major histocompatibility complexes, both type 1 and type 2, have extremely low levels of sequence divergence in the population. In other words, even though these are genetically unique individuals, the genetic variation in these major histopatibility complexes is so small that you can take one cell from one animal and put it in another, and there's a reasonable chance that it's going to uh, it's going to accept it. And that's how you are able to transfer cancer from one to another. It's a very rare thing. It's very unlikely you'd see this in humans because we're so genetically diverse. But in any case, that's how you have transmittable cancer and uh, and and we'll see what happens to the old Tasmanian devils. They're hard to love, but you don't want them to die from some weird face hitting cancer either. So so hopefully they'll stick around for a while. <laughs> if dolphins had this, I think there'd be like forty organizations with millions of dollars from which white people <laughs> trying to save the dolphins. But the you know how it is. So screw the dolphins, save the elephants. In, yeah, if they're all Remember, we just did a story a few I guess months ago now about that guy that got cancer from his tapeworm oh yeah so <laughs> the brain cancer you said you were going to look into that uh, uh, i don't know if it was brain cancer this jump um, on i Scott know thing? he he had hiv and then uh he had that tapeworm and he got he got he, the the cancer the tumors that he had actually had the dna same dna as the uh, tapeworm yeah the tapeworm got and then cancer he, and then it yeah. passed it on to him yeah and you were saying you had said for various reasons that that didn't make sense and you were going to investigate it and then report back to us yes so we're waiting you can go ahead and deliver your report <laughs> right now scott <laughs> uh if it was a true tapeworm parasite tapeworms are very good at avoiding your immune system uh that's how they can live in you well, for plus years and HIV, years so plus he had hiv probably. so he was immunocompromised anyways but if this is a tapeworm derived cancer and which is really just a mutated tapeworm, so to speak, then I can see how it would be easily avoid your immune system because tapeworms are good at doing that anyways. So it's not that your body was accepting this tapeworm. It's just that it couldn't see it. And then you're immunocompromised on top of that. It doesn't seem like a real stretch for me, but it is a weird anomaly. There, Dell. Yeah, but... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best you can do, I guess. It is. Well, Del, I, I, I do want to hear your, your – I know we're, we're getting a little short on time, but I do want to hear your, your yearly summary. Did you have a couple stories that really popped out at you? Um, yeah, and well, actually, I stole all of this from Wired.com. Oh, I found that one too. I was actually – I was going yes. to supplement with my <laughs> Wired.com ones here. <laughs> yeah, so I, not to take credit, give credit to them. It's a cool article. Check it out. Most winningest science from 2015. Uh, I did kind of want to just pick everyone's brain thinking since this is the last – show of 2015 for us to see what we thought were the highlights uh, over the past 12 months but seeing that we're running out of time uh, I'll just well, well do you want to make I'll tell you what do you want to make it the new year should we should we go over these as should your first story of the new year to recap sure. the old one 
I like it. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm ready to get some quiz on. Because we still have some quiz to get on. All right. So sit on that, Dell. Look at you. Don't even have to prep a story for next week. You're all ready to go. I like, except I'll forget everything. (laughs) You just have to remember one article. (laughs) That's a lot. You're asking a lot of me. So much. So with that, let's move into Beta Sandwich Science History. Science three. I love it too. That's my favorite thing that I've ever done for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This week's beta sandwich science history is going to focus on. uh, It's going to dovetail off of one of my other stories. It's going to be all about cancer because there's a lot of history in cancer, and so you guys are going to be tested on your cancer history knowledge. For those of you who don't know or you're new to the podcast, I give three science history facts here. And our co-host and you at home have to put them in the appropriate order. This time, uh, I'm not going to require you to give the year, although you can. And I have a bonus tiebreaker if two or more of you get it all correct. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, the three stories are, the first one is, I want to know, um, oh, hold on here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay, so, so uh, this hold on. You want us to distract the audience right now? Like, no, I here, just everyone. I realize that this is going to be a little different. So this is we don't have to go to the bonus because you guys have to give a number for this one. I want to know the year that the oldest description of cancer occurred. Now, this was not the word cancer as itself, but someone described eight cases of tumors or ulcers in the breast that were removed by cauterization with a tool they called the fire drill, and which sounds delightful for the person it was being used upon. And um, so what year did that happen? Okay. Oldest description of cancer. The second one is, this is the year that after recreational tobacco became popular, this individual wrote a book entitled Cautions Against the Immoderate Use of Snuff. And this was the first observation linking tobacco use to cancer. Okay? So, first one, when was first cancer first described? With the fire drill. <laughs> when was tobacco very first potentially associated with cancer? And the third one was uh, the very first uh, screening of cancer. Do you, can you guys guess what was the first type of uh, cancer to be screened against? Just as a side note. Breast. Breast. Anyone else? Uh, skin. Ooh, skin would be a good one. But ultimately. It's obviously no. not. <laughs> <laughs> it was the pap smear. <laughs> the pap test was the first screening of, uh, of cancer. So when was the first screening of, in this case, of, of the pap test, when did the, the screening occur? So um, uh, two of these are dates. I've, I've kind of done this a little funky here. So um, they're all going to be dates. There's no reason we can't do that now. The date of the oldest possible description of cancer, the date in which we determined that someone determined that snuff may ultimately lead to cancer, and the date that the pap smear, which was the first screening tool, was identified. So let's just do it one at a time. Um, I've got, so Dell, give me the year that cancer was first described. 1744. 1740. That's when we used the fire drill. 
for the cauterization. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Carolina. Uh, eighteen hundred. Okay. And Christian. Let's just round it out. Say nineteen hundred. Nineteen hundred. Okay. Uh, the next one. At what year did did the study come out that determined uh, that snuff may ultimately lead to some forms of cancer? Dell. Oh, we'll go. We'll go differently here. Carolina. Um, eighteen fifty. Okay. Christian. Nineteen twenty. Nineteen twenty and Delbert. Eighteen oh one. Eighteen oh one. Interesting. Okay. And the last one is when do we start screening for cancer, i.e., Pap smear test? Delbert, start again. Nineteen oh three. Christian. Nineteen thirty. Okay. And 1960. 1960. Oh, man, this is going to be rough. Okay. Um, the oldest description of cancer, although the word wasn't cu- uh, wasn't used, that described eight tumors of the breast cancer, was discovered in Egypt back in 3000 BC. Wow. Jesus. So okay. I was some... closest. Because he lowballed it. <laughs> Dell was closest. So Dell gets a star for this first one. Even. <laughs> That was desperately wrong. Although we start getting much closer here. Um, the When snuff may have been identified as a potential carcinogen was identified by Dr. John Hill in 1761. Oh, oh that's Dell again. It is Dell again with his 1801. Just he lowballed. Bam! So this up. Well, he close out all three. The pap smear, which is the first cancer test was identified in 1923, which goes to Christian. Oh, as long oh. as we're not playing Price is Right rules, because Christian technically went over. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we are, because then we'd all be wrong on all of them. Yes. Uh, oh, that is true, huh? Um, yeah. So, Delbert, congratulations. You've won this week. Woo-hoo. I feel and really well good. Well done. For a special really bonus round here, who can guess either the person or the year-ish that the that the term cancer was coined. It is Greek. Is a Greek for carcinos or carcinoma, and it's describe a non ulcer forming or ulcer forming tumor. So think Greek. We're already getting a little older here. And uh, who was it, or the year? Twelve hundred BC, A B A D, twelve hundred eighty. Okay. Uh. uh. Um, uh, uh, 1700. <laughs> <laughs> what the? This is so wrong. Hate you guys. And <laughs> I've already won. I don't have to play this. I completely <laughs> agree with you. Game. Let's not all be hypocrites. Oh, nice. Oh. Boom. Hippocrates. Uh, and he did it. Somewhere in the BCs, like 400 or something. We don't know exactly when. So, he's a father of medicine. It would make sense of those case. But, Delbert, you win. And if we go to our little chart here, Delbert has played eight. Del, you are at a 50-50 ratio. You've won 50% of the games you've played. And, ooh, so is Carolina. Oh, and um, wait a minute. Scott... Dale and Carolina have all won 50% of our games. Wow. 
Christian is doing much worse um, at 30%. Yes. So there we go. Regression to the I mean. Played. Regression to the mean. Yeah. Regression. Um, regression. Dell, do you have a uh, summary for us, sir? What was that? Oh. Do you have a summary for us? <laughs> Sorry, this Hefeweizen's throwing me off my game. It's all the <laughs> overtones of banana and something. Yeah, there's almost 5% alcohol in there. Anytime you're ready. We hope that your ears and brains have been thoroughly satisfied over this last hour or so of the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast serving as an even bigger disincentive for me to ever listen to these recorded podcasts. Scott has allowed us to hear the sounds of the show during the show. Magic. Need blood thinner in your popcorn? Maybe if the story Scott shared is true and screams can make your blood chunkier. Have you ever wondered why fish are so sexy and thin? Well, thanks to Carolina, she's illuminated us and turns out that their oil might turn fat storage cells into fat burning cells. <laughs> thanks a lot, Dad. You might be able to get fat from your dad, according to Christian. And ranking under the worst Christmas gift ever, another form of contagious cancer has been found in those poor, poor Tasmanian devils. If you could only open your pocketbooks and get some money for Tasmanian devils, you can now donate at Beta Sandwich Science Podcast for those poor, sweet creatures. We hope that you enjoyed a, that this That is not show. a binding or true comment. Rounding out 2015, <laughs> we look forward to giving you this and more in 2016. Woohoo! Woo Thank we you, We promise Deborah. you we'll give you almost more than nothing. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Have a great year, everyone. Have a great year, Oddling saying and all that fun stuff. And um, see you next year. See you next year. Uh, now, Carolina, I'm not allowed to do it anymore, and we're completely stagnant. So, can you please tell them what to do? Oh, do they? This is not a violation social... of my oral agreement. Are we on Snapchat yet? Vine. No, all right. we're not on. Vine. Facebook, Twitter, no. uh -huh. Instagram, uh, Snapchat. Yeah, iTunes. Rate us, please. Wait. Del stepped all over it. You need to say that again in louder and with greater fervor. Yes. Okay. With great fervor, please rate us on iTunes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and swipe, swipe us left on Tinder. <laughs> no, swipe right. I think we want. Oh, to, isn't swipe right good? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What kids do. <laughs> all right. We will see you guys all in the new year. That's Dude, that's my we, wife. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm having too much fun with my can new we, noise machine. Can we please uh, end the show? On yeah, I gotta go. Left on Tinder. On, on Tinder. <laughs> Swipe. <laughs> Swipe left on Tinder. Right after, tweet us on Twitter and book us on Facebook and whatever the things are. Swipe <laughs> us on Tinder. And see. <laughs> This we gotta go. We'll see you guys next week. Happy 2016. Uh, happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year. <laughs>